Let's open our Bibles now to the book of James chapter 1. Book of James chapter 1. We are continuing our study of this. I have just been loving the book of James. This great letter. This great epistle from our brother James. James chapter 1. We are picking up where we left off last time, which has us ready for verse 12. So let's once more, if you are able, stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. As we hear now the the very words of God from the pen of our brother James. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we are so grateful for this good and pure and perfect gift which you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit working through your word, you would transform us into the likeness of Christ, that you would convict us of sin. Lord, that you would cause us to see your glory and your might. Lord, that that we would turn from sin, that we would trust even more fully in you. We pray, God, that our, our faith would be strengthened and that we would be encouraged. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us. And pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, how do you respond to the trials that come into your life? James has been talking to us about trials, what trials are doing, how we ought to respond to them. And this is an urgent question for us. How, how do I respond to the trials that come into my life? And it's so urgent for us because Jesus promised us that we'd have trials, that, that in this life we would have trouble. And all the more so for those who follow Jesus. Those who follow Jesus not only experience the ordinary, everyday troubles that everyone experiences because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a sinful world, but we actually experience not only all of those, but additional troubles. Because the world hates the Lord Jesus Christ. The world hates his church. The world hates you, Christian so we need to think very carefully about how we respond to trials. We need to make sure that we respond to them as God would have us. There's a way that's right and there's a way that's wrong in responding to trials. The right way is hard and it's often painful. The wrong way is usually easy and it's often even pleasurable. We're well acquainted with the wrong way of responding to trials. We see it displayed around us everywhere we look. The wrong way of responding to trials. But we don't just see it everywhere we look. We see it up close and personal in our own hearts. The wrong way to respond to trials is to sin. To sin in response to trial. This is is by far the most common way that people respond to hardships. And unfortunately, that, that's not so different among those who profess Christ, those within the church. We respond this way all too frequently. If you are honest with yourself, and if we can't be as we sit here together this morning, where can we be? If you're honest with yourself, you've seen that play out in your life, haven't you? It's easy to respond to trials by sinning. You, you've encountered difficulty, and you've responded by becoming frustrated and angry, and bitter, and resentful, and unforgiving. You've encountered misfortune, and you've responded by becoming discontent. You've responded by, by developing a critical, criticizing spirit that only complains. You've encountered adversity, and you've responded by growing fearful and anxious. You've encountered misery, and you've 
responded by falling into despondency and hopelessness. And you even stop praying earnestly. When, when we sin in response to trials, there is an impulse within us, not just to sin in response, but to shift the blame of our sin off of ourselves and onto someone or something else. We tell ourselves our anger, our bitterness, our discontentment, our complaining, it's not our fault. It's the fault of something else out there, not something in here. We might even in our own minds begin to justify our sinful responses. We, we start to feel the guilt of our sin and we want to assuage that feeling of guilt. And so we tell ourselves, well, nobody's perfect. What's wrong with venting? It's just blowing off a little bit of steam. Everybody does that. Well, I had the right to say what I said. I had the right to think what I think. I have the right to do what I want to do. No one was there for me, so I deserve to lash out. We tell ourselves, I can't help it. This is just the way I am. This is just how I'm wired. This is just what I'm like. I'm just a passionate person. I just care about things. That's why I'm so mean to everyone all the time. Well, I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve the thing that happened to me, so I get to... To respond however I want. I get a pass for that. Nobody understands what I'm going through. These are all just ways we justify our sin. When we justify our sin, what we're doing is refusing to take responsibility for it. I'm not responsible for this. I get a pass for this. And when, we, when we're not going to take responsibility for our, our sin, we know somebody has to. We know it has to go somewhere, and so we shift the blame onto others. We are all guilty of doing this. We all do this. We all seek to shift the blame, to pass on the responsibility to other people. We started doing this as kids. No one needed to teach us how to do it. As soon as we felt guilt, we learned how to blame other people. It came quite naturally to us. We got in trouble, and what did we do? We blamed our sibling. We blamed our friends. We blamed our circumstances. We blamed our teachers. We blamed our parents. Now that we're older and so very much more mature, we do exactly the same thing. We have grown up in it, though. We're more sophisticated at it. We, we blame other people. We blame our circumstances. We do it with more grown-up-sounding words. We blame our upbringing or our environment we blame our hormones. We blame our brain's wiring. We, we blame these things that trigger us. It's on them. It's not my fault you triggered me. We blame a lack of equal opportunity. We blame some kind of systemic oppression where the deck is stacked against us. We blame our spouse. We blame our kids. We blame our boss. We blame the government. We blame Satan. We blame the world. But regardless of who it is that we blame... There's a desire in all of us to be the innocent victim rather than the guilty sinner. We blame others because we are unwilling to admit that we're actually responsible. If it's somebody else's fault, then I'm innocent. But if it's not someone else's fault, well, then I'm guilty. And if I'm guilty, then I'm responsible. And so to avoid guilt and responsibility, we shift the blame and we reason, I only sinned because of this thing the other person did, which even makes my sin not such a bad sin after all. We're all tempted to that. We come by it honestly. It's the same lie Adam and Eve told in the garden, isn't it? It's the exact same thing. You know the story. God confronts Adam over his sin, and Adam defends himself by laying the blame elsewhere. God asks him in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? That's a yes or no question. He only needs one word in response, but he's got more words than that. Verse 12, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now somehow these two stayed married, had kids, but what does Adam do? He immediately blames his wife. And, and not just that. Did you notice? He blames God. The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree. God, you, 
Let's, if we're being honest, it's on Eve, yes. We're, we agree on that. It's Eve's fault. But you share some of the blame too, God. You, you're the one who made this woman and gave her to me. This woman that led me to sin, by the way. You got this whole ball rolling. Eve responded no better. When she was confronted, she evaded responsibility. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam blamed Eve and God. Eve blamed the servant. Neither one took responsibility for their own sinful actions. That's the first couple early in the story. And the human condition hasn't improved one ounce since that day. Not one little bit. We are no different in that regard than Adam and Eve are. We don't want to be responsible. We want someone else to be responsible. We accuse others for our thoughts and our actions and our emotions that are sinful. If the, if the serpent had, had in some way harmed Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve remained faithful. He just came against them, trying to get them to eat the fruit of that tree, and they just would not do it. They continued to obey God. They would have legitimately been victims. They would not have been guilty. But they were guilty. They were not innocent. They were not victims. Because of the way they responded. He tempted them, yes. But because of the way they responded, they were guilty. They, they faced a trial. They faced a temptation and they responded with sin. They are no victims. They are Guilty. Scripture teaches us that we are completely responsible for our sin. 100% responsible for our sin. We get to put none of it on anyone or anything else. We are blamed for our sin because we are blameworthy. We don't sin out of duty. We don't sin out of obligation. It is impossible for someone to force you to sin. We don't sin because we're forced. We, we make a choice. We sin because we want to sin. We sin because we will to sin. And so whether we sin under a trial or whether we sin and we're not even under a trial, we're responsible. Trial is never an excuse for sin. How, how, how then do we respond to trials? That's what James is telling us in these four verses. Verses 12 through 15. So, so far in this letter, James has been, he came right out of the gate instructing us on trials. How it is that we ought to face them as Christians. And he begins in verses 2 through 4 by telling us the purpose of trials. He says, look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So from the, from the very start, from the very opening verses, as James begins to talk to us about trials and how we ought to think of them and how we ought to face them and how we ought to respond to them, James wants us to learn right from the start, God brings trials into our lives in order to produce in us both steadfastness and Maturity. These are two of his aims. He's, he's certainly in any situation doing more than that, but he's always doing at least that. Steadfastness and maturity. That we would grow in our capacity to endure suffering. That we would grow to be more like Christ. And James tells us that God accomplishes these great purposes through trials. And, and it's knowing this. It's knowing, and this is why James starts with this, knowing that there is purpose that God is at work in and through our trials will cause us to bear up under that affliction with joy. As James says, to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. We can count it as joy when we understand the effect that these trials are intended to produce in us. It's the only way we would ever count them as joy. We don't enjoy the trials themselves. I hope we've been abundantly clear about that over the last few weeks. This is not about whipping ourselves up into pretending that we love affliction and suffering. That is not what we're called to do in Scripture. But we can receive the afflictions that God brings into our lives with gladness. Now, to be sure, it's not giddiness. It's a brokenhearted gladness. 
but gladness nonetheless, because we know, we, we know that God is at work. That God has purposes in our pain and that those purposes are good for us. It will be good for us if we can learn to endure. It will be good for us if we can grow to be more like Christ. So, so trials that come into our lives are, is not God being mean to us. It's God being kind to us. The trials that come into our lives are mercies. Mercies that God has brought into your life, Christian. Mercies that God has brought into your life for your good. To grow you up. To make you like Christ. And so, as Christians, we can't begrudge God's providence. We, we, we cannot begrudge. Even, even in our sufferings, we must learn to embrace whatever it is that, that God gives to us. We, we learn to embrace them by understanding the purpose for which they exist. We may not understand exactly what's going on in our trial. We may not get those answers. But if we can know, settled, deep down, convictionally in our hearts, that God is at work for our good, then... We can embrace whatever he has for us. And that's the foundation. James is going to build everything he has to say about trials on. It's that foundation right there. We must know. We must believe. It must be settled in our hearts and in our minds that God is sovereign and that God is good. And not only that. God's not just sovereign all-powerful, can do whatever he wants, does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and never needs anyone's permission to do it. He's not only good and benevolent and loving to, to the whole world in general, he is Christian, your father. This almighty God who does whatever he pleases is your father. He's not just good, he's good to you. And we forget that sometimes, don't we? He is at work for your eternal good and your eternal joy in all things. Not the least of which are the trials that come into your life. And so James builds that foundation for us and says everything comes from this. If we don't understand that, we will never understand our trials. Now in verses 12 through 15... James circles back to this same thing, theme, how to respond to trials. And, and he instructs us that there is a right way and a wrong way to respond to trials. First, the right way. In the positive, we must respond to trials with steadfastness. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. As we've seen, God brings trials into our life that we would grow in steadfastness. Now, James takes that a step further. And he says, since that's God's purpose, that we grow in steadfastness, then our response to trials should be to remain steadfast. If God's purpose in our trials is that we grow in steadfastness, we ought to respond to our trials by remaining steadfast. Steadfast, remain steadfast, to, to persevere, to keep enduring. As we saw a few weeks ago, the word literally means to, to bear up under a heavy weight. It pictures carrying a heavy load and bearing up, standing up under that load for a long time. And that's what trials feel like. Trials feel like a heavy load, like a heavy burden, a heavy weight that we have to learn how to carry we don't just know how to carry it because it has fallen on us. To be steadfast is to hold up. It's to hold out underneath adversity. It's to resist giving up. It's to resist giving in. And James says, the believer that remains steadfast under trials is blessed. And we know that word blessed. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it all throughout Scripture. Sometimes that word's translated as happy. And it certainly does have the connotation of happiness. But it doesn't just mean happy. It means something much, much more than that. In scripture, when God blesses someone, he bestows on them his favor. So this, this word is emphasizing our favored status 
as God's children. It's not a matter of our emotional state. Now, this favored status as, as God's children produces happiness in us often. But it's not an issue of our emotional state. Believers who are steadfast under trial will receive the favor of God, James says. That's what's offered to you, Christian, when you face trials. There's an offer in your trial. If you remain steadfast, you will be favored by God. You will be blessed. And some of the blessings we receive by remaining steadfast under trial, we enjoy in this life. As we have seen earlier in this letter already, when your faith is tested, when you grow in your capacity for endurance, the trials that once tested and shook your faith, don't shake it anymore. That's a blessing. You gain the ability to bear up under more and more difficult trials without losing hope and without losing joy. That's a blessing. God will use you for greater and greater works. That's a blessing. So there are blessings in this life that come from remaining steadfast in trial. But we aren't only blessed in this life. Verse 12, James says, the believer who remains steadfast under trials will be blessed in the life of to come. Look at what he says there. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The blessing to come is the crown of life. God promises us the crown of life if we remain steadfast under trials. It's not the only time this blessing is promised in Scripture. Jesus himself makes a promise of a crown of life. To the persecuted Christians of the church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation. He comforts that church with these words in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be steadfast. Bear up under it. Be faithful all the way to the end. All the way to death. And I will give you the crown of life. What's the crown of life? This, this word crown, it's not the, the crown that a king wears. This word crown is the laurel wreath that winners of an athletic contest were given. This is their trophy. Paul uses that same word with that same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's the word, crown. A perishable crown, but we an imperishable. In other words, this is the crown of reward that James is telling us that we'll receive. That Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that they will receive. We seek a victorious imperishable crown, one that endures forever and ever, one that God himself will reward us with in the age to come. And what is this reward? Life. It's the crown of life. A, a more literal translation would be the crown that is life. That it's, it's, that's the reward. That's the reward, Christian, for enduring your trials. That is the reward for enduring to the end, the crown that is life. Jesus said a couple times in the Gospel of Matthew, he who endures to the end will be saved. That's what James is talking about here. The, the, the final reward for, for standing fast through trial is eternal life with God. This is what James says God has promised to those that love him. To, to, to keep trusting in the Lord. All the way to the end, no matter what comes, is proof that God has done a work in you and that he's going to see it through to completion. So James is not talking about earning our salvation by really holding, holding tight and being strong in the midst of trouble. James is saying it proves what God has done. It's proof positive that God began the good work in you and that he is seeing you through to the end. And so one motivation to keep you enduring when you suffer trials is that eternal life awaits you at the finish line. When your life is over, when the race of faith is done, God will be standing there right at the finish line ready to reward you. That's some motivation. 
your, your life with him for eternity. We can't even comprehend eternity. Your life with him for, for eternity will no longer be filled with any pain, with any suffering, only gladness and joy forever and ever. And so while we live our lives on this earth, our lives are filled with trouble. And so James tells you, you need endurance. You, you need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised to you. We must follow the example of Jesus. What better example could we follow? Jesus, who had to endure great suffering, greater suffering than you or I have or will endure. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to follow the example of Jesus, and that is this. We look to our reward. He was looking to his reward. We look to our reward. The reward we have from God in heaven, eternal life, the crown of life. That is what we look to. Christian, you need to look to your reward if you are going to remain steadfast in this life. And if you remain steadfast, James says, you'll be one who has stood the test. Stood the test. It's a phrase that means you'll be one who has been tested and approved by enduring in faith. For the duration of the trial, you will show that your faith is genuine. You show your faith to be sincere. So Christians, keep pressing on. Keep pressing on to the finish line. Keep pressing on to the reward. Respond to your trials with steadfastness. Always looking to the reward, both here and to come. That's the first way we respond to trials. It's the right way to respond to trials. We trust God and we trust his promises. James warns us that there's something we must not do when we face trials. Second, we must not respond to trials with sin. Often trials come with corresponding temptations. I would say always trials come with corresponding temptations. We, we need to take care that we do not sin in response to those temptations that arise because of our trials. But unfortunately, we often sin in response to our suffering. We often sin in response to our hardships. Frankly, we often sin in response to our minor annoyances. As I said earlier, rather than owning the responsibility of our sin in our pride, we look to shift the blame for our sin onto someone else or something else, just like our parents, Adam and Eve, did in the garden. And just like our father, Adam, James tells us you might also be tempted to blame God. That may seem strange to you. You may think, I never would. I never would do that. But listen, this is enough of a threat that James needs to warn us about it. It might be very subtle. It might be in very subtle ways, or it might be in overt ways. After all, God is sovereign. He allowed this trial to come into your life. He could have made things go differently. He made you. He made you who you are. He made you the way you are. He knows all your weaknesses. And so you may be tempted to think that some of the blame lies with God. One of the, one of the, the subtle ways we do that is just to murmur. Just to murmur against his providence. We murmur. We complain. This shouldn't be happening to me. This isn't fair. I deserve better than this. God, you should have intervened. Why didn't you intervene? It's not my fault. I'm just a pawn in God's hands anyway. Well, the truth is, God is sovereign. God does bring trials into our lives, but he has no sin in doing so. We must 
be perfectly clear about that. God has no sin in doing so. James gives us two reasons not to blame God for our temptation and sin. First, he says God cannot be blamed for our sin because of God's own nature, because of the nature of God. And second, we can't blame God for our sin because of our own nature. Because of the nature of man. So the nature of God on the one hand, the nature of man on the other hand. And in verse 13, James unequivocally says, we cannot blame God for our temptation because of the nature of God. We cannot blame God because of who God is. He says in verse 13, look with me, no one can say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. This word tempted is very important in this passage. It's used repeatedly. In these these verses, it's used five times. He says this word over and over and over again. Tempted is actually derived from the same root word that's translated trial in verse 12. So the word trial in verse 12 and the word tempted here in verse 13 are related words. They're called cognates, if you want to know, or cognates, depending on how you want to pronounce it. So it's not the same word. They're not twins, but they're sisters, right? They're, they're very related. They're cousins, at least. They, they are closely related. They both come from this root word that means test. Why are we talking? This is not a classroom. I am aware. I do know this. I'm pointing it out because James is using these words on purpose. James is doing something with the words that he is using. By using words with the same root word, words that even sound the same, he's leading us from the subject of trials into the subject of temptations. And he's showing us that they're connected to one another. So so whether a test becomes a trial or whether a test becomes a temptation for you will depend in part upon your response. But know this, Christian, in every trial that you undergo, the danger of temptation will always lie close at hand. One of those temptations that we face in severe trials, James reveals to us our own hearts in ways that we may, we may not have seen on our own. One of those temptations is to blame God. Is to blame God for tempting us to sin. The trial we face may indeed come from the hand of God, but we must never believe that God is tempting us to sin. And in verse 13, James makes this point with a play on words. The, The best way probably to draw that out would be to translate verse 13 like this. Let no one say when he is tested... I am being tempted by God. Let no one say when he is being tested, I am being tempted by God. In other words, James is saying no one, no one ever in any trial at any point should ever think or say that they are being tempted by God. We must never point the finger at God. We must never blame God for our temptation That thought is so contemptible that the words no one that begin and end this verse are emphatic. They're like in all capital letters. They're in bold text. Let nobody, not one single person, absolutely no one dare say I am being tempted by God. That must never come out of our mouths. It must never enter into our minds. Why not? Well, the first reason James gives us is this. God cannot be tempted with evil. Literally, that God is untemptable with evil. This word is another, and we saw one previously from James. It's, it's called a hapax legomenon. It only shows up one time. It's the only time it's ever used in Scripture. The, only, the reason is, James made this word up, probably. There was no way to to describe God adequately. God is so unlike us that James made up a word. He's untemptable. That's who God is. John MacArthur in his commentary says, this word carries the idea of being without the capacity for temptation. 
In other words, when tempted, he doesn't have anything within his nature to correspond to it, whereby he might be attracted to it. You could render it invincible. Literally understood, God is invincible to temptation. Why is that? Well, it's because God's holy. If we're going to say anything about God, we must say that. God is holy. You might ask, what about Jesus? Wasn't he tempted? Wasn't he tempted in every way just as we are? The answer is yes. Jesus was truly tempted. The Bible's not lying to us when it says that. But Jesus was not tempted from within. He was tempted from without. Satan tempted him. The world tempted him. But Jesus never had within him the impulse to sin because he was always holy. Because there was never any evil in him from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus has been holy as God is holy. And so regardless of which person of the Trinity we are speaking of, the nature of God is untemptable. God cannot be tempted with evil. That's true of all three persons of the triune Godhead. So that's the first reason James gives us. Another reason God can't be blamed for our temptation, James says, is God himself tempts no one with evil. Not only can he not be tempted himself, but he also doesn't tempt anyone. To, to tempt is to entice to sin. Well, that is something God would not do, and it is something God cannot do. And God tests people, but he does not tempt people. Jesus, when he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, said, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And when we pray that prayer, we're not pleading with God to stop tempting us with sin. God, you've been tempting me to sin. Please stop now. Please deliver me from that. The, the word temptation in that prayer, it's the same word James uses in verse 12 here that's translated trial. In other words, Jesus taught us to ask God, spare me any trial that would tempt me to sin. Deliver me. Deliver me from those situations. To say it another way, you're to plead with God that he would lead you away from any test that you would fail. God, don't let me be tempted. Lead me away, God, from any test that I would fail because I do not want to sin against you. So lead me away from any tests that I might fail. That's our prayer. It's a good prayer to pray. God himself tempts no one. So because of the nature of God, because of who he is, we cannot blame him for our sin. We are guilty of our own sin. There's another reason we can't blame God for our sin, and that's the second part. It's the nature of man. We can't blame God because of his own nature. We cannot blame him because of our own nature. Verse 14, he continues, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Catch those words. He is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're tempted by our own desire. The desire here is it's a longing. It's a craving for unrighteousness. It's, it's an evil desire. There, there is a passion within us that wars against righteousness. As believers, we must fight against our fleshly desires that remain. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions. It's the same word. Same word as desires here. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He says in verse two, in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. And we know that this is true. We know that this is within us. We, we know that there are desires within us that are not godly. They don't please God. They are desires of the flesh. They are not desires of the spirit. And they war against righteousness in us. Even the apostle Paul felt that exact same struggle between what he knew to be right and this desire that, it, that came from his sinful flesh that warred against that. He says in Romans chapter 7 verse 18, I know nothing good dwells in me. 
That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Why does Paul say that? Paul says that because he's taking full responsibility for his own sin. This is all coming from in me. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, this is true. Within within me are, are these evil desires that war against the righteousness of Christ. That, that war against obedience to Christ. I am a wretched man, but this is not a hopeless message. Who will deliver me from this body of death? God will. God will. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, who will deliver you? God will. The reason we sin when tempted is because of this desire that's in us. That's why we sin. We, we sin because we want to. We sin because we have the will to. This, this isn't to deny that Satan and the world and others tempt us to sin. They do. They, they absolutely do. But their external temptations require an inner ally inside of us. If it's going to lead us to sin, it can't just be the external temptation. There is this inner ally of our own evil desires that is required in order to entice us, to to lure us to sin. Others may provide the opportunity for us to sin. Others may invite us to sin. Others might make sin look attractive, but temptation only works to draw us into sin when it finds a heart that is receptive because of unrighteous desire. The effectiveness of temptation relies on the receptivity of your own heart to temptation. And when temptation finds a willing heart, it, James says, lures and entices us to sin. Lure and entice. They're very graphic words. They're used in fishing. They're used in hunting. Lure means to drag and to pull away. Entice means to to arouse and to capture. Bait draws out prey by looking attractive. It invites the prey to come and indulge. But that bait is not alone. That bait is tied to a hook. That bait is connected to a trap. That bait has some guy with a gun hiding in the trees nearby. And it leads to death. In the same way our fleshly desires cause us to look at sin as attractive. To invite us to indulge. But when desires give way to sin, sin ultimately leads to death. Left unchecked, desire will progress to sin and sin will progress to death. In verse 15, he says, when desire, And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James switches up the word picture on us here. With the metaphor of birth and growth and death. When desire is implanted in the will, it gives birth to sin. In other words, sin is the child of evil desire. When sin is left to grow and develop and become fully grown, as James says, it brings forth death. Brings forth is a a synonym for conceive. In other words, death is the child of Sin. And it is the grandchild of evil desire. Ungodly desire begets sin and sin begets death. So what must we do to stop this? 
What must be done to keep desire from progressing to death? Well, James doesn't tell us here. But other scripture is perfectly clear. The answer is a simple one. Repentance. How do we stop this cycle of the the evil desire that lives in us, that's lurking? How do we stop that from leading to death? Repentance. Without repentance, eventually, sin will lead to everlasting death. That's how serious this is. But for all the reasons we've seen, we need to get serious about taking responsibility for ourselves before God. Taking responsibility for our own sin. I am accountable for my own sin. And you are accountable for your own sin. I am guilty for my own sin and you are guilty for your own sin. I am to blame for my own sin and you are to blame for your own sin. We sin because we want to. No one has ever forced you to sin. Not one time. Not one time in your life. And not one time in anyone else's life has anyone ever been forced to sin. The responsibility lies wholly within ourselves. We cannot blame God. We cannot blame anything else. We cannot blame anyone else. And one test to determine if you're serious about taking responsibility for your sin is the extent to which you confess your sin to God. We don't take responsibility for our sin by working it off. Not by doing more good things than the bad we've done so we stock up more in the positive pile than the negative pile. We don't take responsibility for our sin by feeling perpetually guilty and perpetually beat down and perpetually condemned as if Christ did not live and die and rise again. But make no mistake, where there is little confession, there is little ownership for sin. You can be sure that those who neglect to confess their sin specifically to God are still playing the blame game for their sin. They are not repenting. They still think it's not a big deal. But what they've done is basically understandable. We need to get serious about owning the guilt for our sin by confessing it to God and by turning from it in repentance. And when you're in a trial, know that that trial is no excuse for your sin. Sin is always the wrong response to a trial. Always. So are you under a trial right now? question we need to ask ourselves is how have I responded how am I responding to that trial Christian how have you responded to the trial that you're facing how would God say you've responded are are you responding with sinful attitudes and actions are you angry are you vengeful are you frustrated and bitter Are you unforgiving? Are you resentful? Are you anxious? Are you hopeless? Are you prayerless? What must you do? Repent. Repent of the the sinful response to your trial and instead ask God that he would help you to bear up under it in faithfulness, in obedience, in trust, to remain steadfast in the trial no matter how long it lasts. Friends, some of you, some of you are in a trial and it's not going anywhere. God is able to change it. God can do whatever he wants. He could heal you. He could change that relationship. Whatever it is. Are you willing to be faithful to him if you have to bear up under this trial for the whole rest of your earthly life, knowing that one billion years from now, it will seem like a minor inconvenience to you in the light of eternity in his presence? Are you willing to trust him in it? To bear up under it? Ask him. Ask him. To help you remain steadfast under the trial, no matter how long it takes. Ask 
God, that when this trial is resolved, and your trial may be resolved soon, and your trial may not be resolved until you die, but ask God that when this trial resolves, that you will have passed the test, that you will have been one approved. Ask God that you would be one approved by him. One worthy of hearing the words from his mouth. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Ask him that you'd receive, as he has promised, the crown of life. Friends, that's our hope. We need to make that our prayer. That's the sure promise. And that is the promise that we hold on tightly to. And we don't let go. This is not a matter of the power of positive thinking. It is not a matter of being smart or holy or noble. It is a matter of trusting the promises of God. God is sovereign. God is good. And God is, Christian, your father. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the hope. Lord, even as we we are confronted by our brother James, even as he he sticks his finger right in our face and accuses us of sin, Lord, we know that this is your kindness. Lord, that conviction that we feel is the kindness of our loving Father, whose, whose spirit he has given to dwell in us, who convicts us of sin and righteousness, lifts our eyes to behold Christ, the one who lived and died and rose again. The one who bore our condemnation for our sins. So that, that Lord, though we falter, though we stumble, though we transgress and sin. That what this leads to for us, your people, is not eternal death. But Lord, you've promised to us a crown of life. And in your command that we remain steadfast and persevere We also know that that is built on the foundation of the sure promise that you will cause your people to remain steadfast and persevere. Help us, Lord, to walk in faith and in obedience, Lord, where we are guilty. I pray your Holy Spirit in your kindness now would convict us of sin if we are responding sinfully now, even to trials, even to minor annoyances, whatever it is. Pray that in your mercy you would convict us of sin and grant that we would turn from it this morning and walk out of this place free men and women. Able to bear up under whatever trials come our way in the joy of the Lord, trusting in your providence, trusting in your goodness, trusting in your promises. Pray that you be glorified in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.